Hi everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues and our world today. I am Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. It's been 10 years since the 2008 financial crisis, and scholars and policymakers are still reflecting on its causes and effects. The world has gone through a series of tightening regulations and de-risking. The transparency and interdependence of the financial sector have improved, but is the crisis truly over? In 2008, 10 years after the crisis, a compelling analysis of what really happened was published. Crashed: How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. The book was written by Professor Adam Tooze from Columbia University, who is in our studio today to further explain some of the ideas in his book and comment on some of the global trends today. Thank you so much for joining us today in the studio, Professor Tooze. Yeah, thank you for having me here. So, your most recent book, Crashed, was published last year. It's one of the Economist magazine's books of 2018 and one of the most highly regarded books on financial crises published in recent years. Many of our listeners might not have gotten the chance to read it, so would you mind giving our listeners some context to the issues you're discussing and maybe some、uh, brief description to some of the ideas in your book? So, I mean, I think、um, one of the things to focus on when you think about the financial crisis of 2008 is what was it? What was it really about? And there are so many different things going on at the same time. We we have the long run. Trajectory of the Chinese economy, the huge shift in the balance of the global economy—that's really the dominant story of the last couple of decades. Then closer to home, we have the extraordinary shock of the、uh, real estate bubble bursting, and then in Europe we have this long-burning eurozone crisis, which is all about sovereign debt, about government debt. But what Crash tries to do is to centre the, the key dynamic, really, that makes 2008. Not just a dramatic crisis, but perhaps the most dramatic crisis、uh, in the history of the world economy, which is the simultaneous near collapse of all of the major banks in the banking centres of on both sides of the Atlantic. And this is really what makes 2008 unlike any other moment in economic history, up to and including the Great Depression of 1929 to 1933, where we saw banking failure. In the United States, in Austria, in Germany, all over Europe, in fact,、uh, but not compressed and not on this scale in a, you know, incredibly short period of time. Really, in the second, third week of September two thousand and eight, and that's really what makes it distinctive. This also then brings us back to the significance of the real estate crisis, because the real estate crisis was a, was a spectacular event. It shattered the livelihoods of. The construction sector of the real estate business sector on both sides of the Atlantic. The Spanish economy is still struggling to recover from that. It had a huge impact on the balance sheets, on the net wealth of tens of millions of households on both sides of the Atlantic. But that explains, you know, if you like, a case of the economic flu.、Uh, it explains a recession. It explains people tightening their belts, spending less, investing less, consuming less. What it doesn't explain is what we witnessed in 2008, and that's really where the banks come in, because the the nature of the crisis in 2008 was that recession in the real estate sector, those losses on people's balance sheets, also hit the balance sheets of the banks, and the banks are different、um, because they're not really lending their own money; they're not like so-called real money investors that take money from wealthy families or just from regular families and put it in an investment. Banks borrow to fund their investments. 
And so when their investments go bad, they're subject to a particular type of risk, which we broadly speaking call a bank run. And so another way of describing what happened in 2008 is simply the largest ever bank run, a global bank run, a transatlantic bank run, and not your ordinary mom and pop bank run with, you know, little old people trying to get their money out of the bank, but hundreds of billions of dollars being moved out of the money market, out of the accounts of banks, out of the funding stream of banks in a matter of hours um, in the critical phases of September 2008. Got you. Uh, I guess another fascinating idea in addition to the idea of transatlantic finance was macro finance, how national economic aggregates are sort of replaced by a focus on corporate balance sheets where the actual real action is happening in the financial system. So the world economy right now, as you mentioned, is kind of run by a few thousand massive corporations with interlocking shareholders controlled by a tiny group of asset managers. Would you mind explaining a bit more what this concept is, why it's so different and revolutionary from previous concepts that we've tried to use to explain financial crisis? Well, for a large part of the 20th century, really from World War I onwards through to, I would say, 2008, the obvious way to understand international economic action, interaction seemed to be through the relationship of national economies to each other. And China and the rise of China has in some senses reinforced this idea because the Chinese economy remains in crucial respects a classic national economy. It has exchange controls. The Chinese regime accumulates a gigantic holding of foreign exchange. There's quite tight regulations of key aspects of the economy. It resembles in many ways a sort of mid-century modern economy in Europe uh, in the 1950s and 1950s and 1960s. Um, But all the while... From the 1970s onwards, particularly in the West, particularly between Europe and America, above all in the North Atlantic area of the world economy, we've also seen pressure towards truly globalization, I mean, true deep globalization. And and the the financial sector is the most dramatic uh, side of this. Um, It's been a cliche, really, of our thinking about the economy um, ever since the 1970s. But what's surprising, if you read commentary about the instability, potential for instability, potential for crisis in the world in the early 2000s, in the years leading up to 2008, is the focus is still on that 20th century national economic way of thinking. And that's part of the reason why so many commentators commentators focused on China, why they focused on the Chinese American Maxis. And what's shocking, therefore, about 2008 is not just that it was this gigantic bank run, but the bank run was happening simultaneously on both sides of the Atlantic. And it was clearly happening simultaneously because the banks were, in effect, operating across the North Atlantic zone as though it was a single gigantic financial pool, if you like. Borrowing dollars to lend in dollars, borrowing euros to lend in dollars, um, borrowing dollars to lend in euros gigantic flows going back and forth, all of which really conformed to one cliche of what the world was like in the 21st century, but wasn't being really captured in the national economic aggregates that continue to dominate policy discussion, particularly when we were thinking about the big story of China. And so one of the jobs which Crashed has to do is really to disentangle, not just as it were to describe the facts of the matter, but to disentangle the reasons why they were so invisible. Uh, before 2008. And this is where macro finance comes in, because what the macro financial literature has done, driven in part by economists who are closely associated with with Princeton University, one thinks in particular of Hong Xin, who's now at the BIS, um, 
is to try and remap the world economy, not through national accounts, but through the interlocking balance sheets of global corporations. Okay? And that's, that's really, to me, a novel way of looking at things. And as a historian, what strikes me about it is when it arose. And it, that, this microfinancial revolution in thought, in conceptualization, is really beginning to happen in 2006 and has gathered steam ever since, really, over the last 10 years. Um, and so I'm interested in that double uh, shock, if you like, both the crisis as such and also the kind of its paradigm breaking effect uh, on our thinking about national economies. I think you mentioned in your talk today at Princeton, actually, that um, aside from the BIS perspective, there's also the new left. Hmm. Um, would you mind explaining a little bit more on the idea of new left, new right? Yeah, no, I mean, this is one of the things that's really striking about this moment is that um, it's it's um, reflected in the person I'm thinking of in particular is Peter Gowan, who was a, a late lamented contributor to the, the New Left Review. He unfortunately died in 2009, but he left us a remarkable essay from, from that spring called Crisis in the Heartland, which gets exactly to the point. In other words, this is a crisis of the heartland of global capitalism, the transatlantic economy. And, and he, he picks up on this macro-financial literature and poses it as a, as a challenge for Marxism. If, if the challenge for conventional international Keynesian economics um, is that we have to break with a national economic paradigm, the, the challenge for, for Marxist leftist economics is that we have to dissociate ourselves from the idea that financial flows are essentially epiphenomenal. They're essentially reflexes of real economic flows, which are driven by labor, which are driven by the accumulation of capital, driven by trade surpluses. Uh, and um, the left is very, for obvious reasons, if you know any Marxism, is very loath to grant autonomous historical significance to the financial sector as such. And yet that's exactly what we see in 2008, right? This is the, the, the balance of trade imbalance between the United States states um, uh, and the rest of the world was with China. Um, that's not where the financial crisis happens. Um, South Korea, which has a gigantic trade surplus, finds itself in a situation um, of financial peril in the fall of 2008. And what I find extraordinary about the macro financial literature, which I see, which is developing in you know, the very hub of, of, uh, of mainstream international governance, uh, in places like the BIS, is that it singles out large privately owned profit-driven corporations as the key drivers of the global economy. Now, that's something that they could agree with Marxist critics on. You're the account that you blithely gave a couple of minutes ago saying, you know, the world economy is dominated by a few thousand corporations uh, whose ownership is highly concentrated, which is run by an even smaller group of asset managers, you know, no Marxists would disagree with you. Uh, uh, and the fact that we have reached this stage where a realistic account of the operation of the economy has to dispense with the euphemisms of the national economy, has to dispense with the idea that we're all in it together, has to dispense with the idea that you grow the pie and don't worry about distribution, which is the acute moment that we're in right now. That's what's so significant for me about 2008 is it forces even incredibly mainstream thinkers to this conclusion. So, so is that a big issue nowadays that balance sheets are so tied together that we should focus on capital yeah. flows instead yeah. of trade surpluses? And 
uh, what's the implication here? How would the next crisis look like? And it goes outwards from there, right? You, you know, you had a meeting at Jackson Hole of the leading central bankers of the world and the, the top monetary economists of the world this fall that was focused on what issue? It was focused on the distributional impacts of oligopoly uh, across the United States economy and their implications for monetary policy. So it's radiated out from an original preoccupation with banks, which if you, you're too young to remember, but in 2008-9, the too big to fail problem was all about Wall Street. I think when you say too big to fail now, you don't necessarily even think of banks. You probably think of Facebook or you think of Amazon, right? Or you think of um, Huawei or something like that. You think of a global tech conglomerate, right, that is strategic. But in a sense, Amazon or Google in China is a macro financial and inverted commas, it's a macro corporate kind of problem. It's a problem of geopolitics, it's a problem of human rights, um, and it's a problem of corporate self-interest and of global governance, how these things interact. So the crisis, to my mind, opened up you know, a discussion about corporations, starting with the banks, but now spiraling into virtually every area. Um, which is which is very fascinating. And you can think of the push now to regulate the use of data as analogous to uh, the push to, to engage in macroprudential regulation of banks. In both cases, it involves really surprisingly intrusive questions about companies' business models being put not by the Chinese regime or you know any neo-Marxist kind of regime in the West, but by regulators of the European Union. Are the policymakers educated or aware enough to handle those those issues? Are we sort of seeing enough policy response? Because we, we're seeing, for example, the tax cut. We're seeing a lot of mm-hmm. talks about deregulation right now since, mm-hmm. oh, after 10 years, we've already had enough regulation mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. control those banks. We saw the uh, TRICE Act, the rollback mm-hmm. of Dodd-Frank, and that's just on the banking sector. We're, yeah. we're seeing that you know in tech, in data privacy, there's not that much discussion going on. I feel like people are not, we always joke, joke about digital dictatorship and saying Google will one day control all of us, but I don't think people are, are technically really talking about those issues. Well, what you're pointing to is you know one of the other great fault lines which has been produced by two 2008, which is the fact that America has a two-party system, but it only has one party of government. Um, you know, the Republican Party and the majority that they have in, in Congress and the control of the administration they have right now is indeed engaged in a kind of no-holds-barred, I mean, anything short of legislation, because they don't seem actually to be able to legislate on anything except tax cuts, um, but a no-holds-barred assault on the guts of the regulatory state. But there are the odd one out. This isn't happening in China. This isn't happening in the EU, right? Uh, America is America is a rogue elephant in that respect, um, and that is an effect of its extraordinarily lopsided political system, uh, where you you have one party which, which which is very mainstream. The Democratic Party would feel very comfortable in the policy discourse of the EU, and with certain provisos, it would feel quite comfortable in the policy discourse of macroprudential regulation that we see in China. I mean, China's efforts to manage the credit boom there are a supercharged version of, of, of what we've been talking about with regard to macroprudentialism. Even China's exchange controls increasingly operate through control of the balance sheets of the big Chinese banks. The Chinese don't try to chase every single Chinese trying to take money out of the country. They look at the bank accounts of the big policy banks and the shadow banking system to try and track where money's going, right? So they use the techniques of macroprudentialism. Um, 
in the United States because of the vagaries of the American democratic system and the break breakdown really of the Republican Party as a party of government, which was evident in 2008 when the Bush administration couldn't get the votes of its own congressional party to do basic things like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, let alone TARP. Uh, the United States is absolutely right, a kind of counter cyclical movement in this direction. And one has to say it implies a kind of catastrophist vision of economic governments. I mean, they are they are deliberately courting, uh, you know, risks that no one in their right mind would court. I mean, and I'm not saying this out of, as it were, you know, the Democrats aren't socialists. Um, the Democrats just simply think that financial capitalism has to be governed with a pretty firm hand because otherwise it's capable of producing absolutely dramatic crisis. Um, that awareness uh, of the complicated calculus of self-interest just doesn't seem to be available in the Republican Party, not just on that, but on tax policy. And you can say the same on climate change and issues like that. You know, climate change doesn't have to be the, you know, a climate change politics doesn't have to be hostile to business. There's lots of different ways of monetizing it in ways that would make it great business. But the Republicans' interpretation of climate change politics is it's, you know, regulation, it's crypto-socialist, it's an assault of some sort of crazy liberalism on the American way of life. And so it has to be resisted root and branch. Um, and that's disastrous. Um, so, so you mentioned that the current American political system isn't really handling uh, the, the issue well. One bit, the Republican Party. It's not the system as such. It's a system with one element in it, which is not committed to governance in the 21st century sense. Okay, that, to that totally makes sense. But, but aside from America, are there any other countries in the world that are, I guess, more aware of those issues? Because I, I know there's an idea out there that basically says liberalism in general mm -hmm. or the, the political systems we're seeing today mm -hmm. would just not be able to handle all those yeah. corporations, tech companies in the future. They just don't know how to do it anymore. And we'll need a new overarching ideology to handle all of this. Do, do, do you I, don't know, I don't know whether we need a new overarching ideology, but what we're talking about is clearly some sort of post-liberal form of governance. One, there's, there's different ways of framing this. There's different types of law that you could put around it. I mean, the EU is articulating a model, say, for the regulation of tech, which is based around issues of personal rights. So to that extent, is classically liberal in its conception. Um, it's intrusive, however, on private business, which to that extent goes against what you might call a sort of market-friendly liberalism. So we're certainly looking at a renegotiation of those um, of those principles. But I'm skeptical about big terms like you know the liberal international order or the post-war liberal international order. These seem to me unhelpful for thinking about the way in which this kind of work of governance is actually being done right now. I don't even use the word neoliberalism barely at all in the book. Um, because it's not obvious to me that that per se is really a term being used by contemporaries in the 70s, 80s and 90s to describe what they're doing or to motivate it. You can explain what's being what's happening with without resort to that kind of sledgehammer sledgehammer concept. Um, uh, so so certainly there is a there are a variety of massive challenges to global governance which arise from financial instability, the power shift to Asia, the long-term challenges of demography and the climate and so on and so forth, those do pose challenges to the framework of the rule of law. They pose challenges to the framework of the existing balance between the public and the private and so on. Um, 
but um, you know, to kind of describe this as a fundamental existential crisis of liberalism, I think, is to sort of add excess icing to a cake which is already thoroughly iced. So, if there is no fundamental crisis, do you see any large-scale global financial crisis or global crisis in general? I, no, I mean, I do think there's a fundamental crisis. I think that when we describe it as a crisis of liberalism, we kind of almost understate it because we posit that we know what liberalism is, and that's the problem. No, the, the, you know, I got 99 crises, but <laughs> that isn't the one that I'm going to be focusing on, right? The, the, there's a mass of problems, massive problems. I mean, the demographic pressure in sub-Saharan Africa, like the, you know, the, the mass violence in large parts of Central America that, that drives the migrant waves to the United States, the extraordinary problem of inequality, you name it, you can make a list. You know, anyone, any person in their right mind who sits down to survey the world today will be able to make a list of, you know, a dozen urgent problems. I just don't think that a crisis of liberalism is a very helpful way of thinking about those, right? Totally um, makes sense. Yes. So, and, and then, of course, also you can avoid the impasse of saying, well, we can't work with China because it's not liberal. Um, no, it isn't liberal, <laughs> right. right? But does China care about climate change? I think it clearly does, right? right? Does China care about financial stability? It definitely does. Does China understand the problem of migration? Has any society been affected more dramatically by migration, right? You, you, does that mean that the human rights problem goes away? No, it does not, right? But you, you can disaggregate the problem into uh, real issues of governance uh, about which there may or may not be agreement, but you don't have to, as it were, add to that this question of, well, first of all, are you liberal? Right. So, so, but where do you see the next crisis happening? Is it China? You, you. I think you mentioned in the book that China will be the only agent that is that can produce a genuine crisis today. Well, you know, if we're thinking about something like two thousand and eight, so not a bad case of the flu, but a heart attack, something that would challenge the systemic stability of the world economy. The only place where we're seeing growth dynamic enough and the credit build up rapid enough to see anything even remotely like that would be China. It's not, however, clear that the spillover effects from China um, are large enough to generate the kind of whiplash, critical mass chain reaction that we saw between Europe and the United States in 2007-8. That may be a thing of the future. And I end the book by talking about the near-miss crisis in China in 2015-2016, not because it is that big new bust, but because it's a harbinger, I think, a sign of where we might be headed in future. And what's so fascinating about 2015-2016 in East Asia is that what we see for the first time is not a problem of China's strength. In other words, the scenario we had before 2008 where Chinese investors sell off American debt and American interest rates rocket and the dollar plunges. What we saw is the reverse. In other words, a flight out of the Chinese currency uh, driven by Chinese privates. So it isn't, uh, you know, it was it was buffered by the strength of the Chinese public account, the state account with a huge foreign exchange reserve. So they just hemorrhaged a trillion dollars and didn't blink, right? Well, that's not true. They did blink. They imposed exchange controls, mounted a major stimulus action, and then looked to America for cooperation. But they could deal with it, right? Because China's foreign exchange reserve is large enough to buffer that kind of that kind of that kind of hemorrhage. Um, but that's what we saw in 1516. And th if that is the future, and it's very unclear whether it will be now, because I wrote, finished the book uh, in 17, when we hadn't yet seen the full working through of the building tension between China and the US, which cannot be reduced to Trump. This goes well beyond Trump at this point, as I'm sure you all know. 
Um, this isn't a matter of tariffs and trade, and it's not a matter of soy and so on. It's, we're going deep now into the interstices of the modern economy with tech and a much more general geopolitical antagonism between the US and China that will affect probably millions of people on both sides of that divide, particularly uh, Chinese in the United States who are all putatively enemies of America under this new regime uh, of securitization that the American, the Trump administration is pushing. In any case, that's a different trajectory from where we were even 12 months ago. But I think that one scenario we need to think about is how future crises might unfold around an unstable financial economy in China itself, which is massively interconnected with the rest of the world. And the one bank where you could really see something analogous to what we've seen before is HSBC. So it's the only Western bank which is really life and death dependent on bracketing the Western and the Asian world. Uh, and it's very big. It's one of the few European banks left standing, insofar as one can regard it as European, headquartered in the city of London, much like the hub of the European crisis was in 2007-8. Bank of England has done some quite interesting research on the exposure of the city I think hidden in their numbers, if you regard them macro financially, what we're actually seeing is the bank, uh, the balance sheet of that bank. So the next crisis could be between China and Europe. That's it could be through China, China in the West, mediated by way of the exposure of some very big, too big to fail European banks. But it doesn't look like the comprehensive entanglement we had between Europe and the US before 08. It is not as comprehensive, but also I guess certain people would say. China can really effectively handle a crisis today because the government has so much policy mandate yeah. and, and the yeah. central bank has so much control and yeah. financial tools. But do you agree with that that, that opinion? In, in well, we. I mean, I, I'm an outsider to the Chinese story. I don't speak Chinese. I've never actually been in China. Um, <laughs> I read about it obsessively, like anyone else. I think who's woken up to the world right now. You know, it's the the biggest single drama that any of us have seen. It's the single biggest drama in economic history. Full stop. Uh, no society of China's size has ever grown as fast as it has over there for as long as it has. So, you know, it's it's the single biggest drama. And the Chinese regime um, has administered that uh, with remarkable efficacy, with remarkable ruthlessness. If you think about the purge of the state-owned enterprises in the late 90s and the early 2000s, they rode out an incredible wave of closures, unemployment. Uh, we know what resources of internal discipline and repression the Chinese are willing to mobilize uh, when they when they see fit. So all of that is there. Uh, but it has to be said that if what we're gambling on um, is the ability of Beijing to manage this, then we're gambling on Beijing pulling off the most successful you know, economic policy experiment in history. And that's maybe what will emerge here. Uh, and that will, of course, have very dramatic consequences for the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party and for the regime, which it has built since taking power, you know, taking power of the entire country in 1949. This is, a, and to that extent, a world historic situation we face. If China can do that and can sustain this growth and can manage the Chinese, the crisis risk, then um, it has claims to efficacy, to output legitimacy, uh, performance-based legitimacy, which no one in the world can match. Um, and liberals in the West and uh, exponents of our model will have to deal with that. Uh, we'll have to face what that implies. Um, and I think that is the question that hangs over the West right now. Um, um, and we're, we're, so deeply, we're so deeply entangled with China's success story. And we're so dependent on the efficacy of China's regime with respect to the other great challenges of humanity, notably with regard to climate change, that no one in the West can hope for a bad outcome here 
But I don't know whether we've really prepared ourselves for the consequences of recognizing a success, you know, an even greater success than the one that Beijing has already achieved. So shifting back from China to some of the other stuff, I guess in in the West, we we saw Brexit, we saw the rise of nationalism, populism. Um, obviously, trade protectionism is going on. Mm-hmm. Would you attribute all of those as sort of consequences or the residual of the financial crisis I mean, in the, 2008 yeah. or some of the? I mean, the image I use is a is a uh, again like I oscillate between a. Uh, you know, a classic Marxism and uh, and a more conventional social science. Like so, you know, uh, Leon Trotsky had the great phrase "uneven and combined development." This is how you do. You try and understand the world as interconnected and yet differentiated, and therefore, at any given moment, what you see is not everyone moving in lockstep and the same causal relationships applying everywhere, because the world is not uniform. It's constitutively uneven, and yet it is intimately interconnected with each other. Another more homespun kind of image is to think of 2008 like a seismic event, like an earthquake. And we all know that the impact of an earthquake depends on how close you are to the epicenter, how strong it was, how well your buildings were built, how well those buildings were maintained, whether or not there's a tsunami, a different kind of shock that issues from that first shock, and whether or not you've built a nuclear reactor in the path of the tsunami, which they did at Fukushima, right? So... An earthquake will generate one type of event in a place with solid buildings that have been well-maintained that's a long way away, and yet those outcomes will be the result of that earthquake. And in another place, you can have total meltdown, um, depending on the underlying structure, right? And the world in politics is at least as complicated as you know the seismic uh, geography of global architecture. So there are some places... We know which are a little bit like the Fukushima instance, like Hungary, which is a pressure cooker of national politics waiting to go off. And he's shocked in 2008, much worse than we in the West generally recognize. It's one of the first countries to need an IMF program. And so in Hungary, what you see is, you know, the delegitimization of uh, the Social Democrats, the emergence of ideal conditions for a clever nationalist like Orban to take power and to play this, to play against the EU, to play against the IMF, to rally support in due course from Putin. Of course they can do that. In the Ukraine, you know, not next door, but in Eastern Europe, you have a state which is basically, it's not waiting to explode in a national direction, it's waiting to implode. Um, which is what happened to the Ukraine in 2008. And Yanukovych, much as we may be loath to admit this, was elected probably fair and square in 2010 because his predecessors had had been having to be administering an IMF program. All the way up the other end of Europe, you have an incredibly complex chain of events which leads in Britain from the 2008 uh, moment, the delegitimization of the City of London, the struggles of the Labour Party, you know, there's no doubt that the course of events that ultimately lead to the decision um, of uh, the Cameron administration to risk uh, the, the EU referendum um, was deeply influenced both by Labour's delegitimization in 2008 and the subsequent Eurozone crisis, um, which follows directly from it. But this is now, now we're into, you know, earthquake, tsunami, uh, Fukushima and bolts and more. Now, whatever happens in the course of that event does originate in the earthquake. But to understand what happens next, you have to retrace that entire complex chain. And that's what that's what history, that's what good history systematically does, is to kind of sketch these things out. That means you don't end up with a simple story of 2008 causing populism, because in many places it didn't. It certainly didn't spawn, you know, nationalist resentment uh, in in places like Spain initially. 
Uh, it did in Greece to a small extent, but the party that really won there uh, was Syriza, which is a left-wing party. Also, to some extent, patriotic, of course, a politics of the left, however, not the politics of the right. So um, this is not a simple story where you can say crisis 2008 output populism. Um, but it's a story in which you where where you cannot understand the emergence of the and the breakdown of the conventional party politics of the 1990s without reference back to this back back to this moment, which is why the book ends up being as long and as complicated as it does in the final part, because that's where I try and address these issues. So, do you think our world today is similar to any? historical period before, like, I don't know, in the 1930s, uh, 1914, some of those? I mean, we can't help thinking that way. Uh, and, you know, we, we use concepts which are, you know, thinking about history, which are themselves derived from previous experience. But I just don't think that's the most interesting way of thinking about uh, thinking about our current situation. I mean, you could say the world's more multipolar than it was. Um, so that's a little bit like 19, pre-1914 and the rise of a new power like China is a little bit like, you know, the, the rise of um, uh, the rise of imperial Germany. Or indeed, some people would say it's a little bit like the rise of Sparta. You know, you end up in these sort of simple analogizing uh, kind of moves. I mean, you know, with regard to the military confrontation, it's still the case that never before in history has one power ever commanded the extraordinary military preponderance that the United States does. Um, so w why you would predict, you know, a, a, a challenger to act uh, in the face of that just seems to me to be, you know, that's very unlike the world of 1914. The world of 1914 was incredibly finely balanced uh, and the alliance systems were incredibly entangling. That's that's really not our situation today. Um, that doesn't mean that our situation today isn't risky, but I wouldn't start by analysing it by analogies to, to 1914. Um, to me, sometimes that kind of move can be a little bit like the problem that a good psychoanalyst will point out in a patient who constantly wants to blame, constantly wants to blame their parents. Now, it's the job of psychoanalysts to talk with people about their parents and their deep structure and the deep traumas that they carry with them. Uh, but if you actually want to understand what's going on in somebody's head, it's much more instructive more often than not to actually look what they did in the moment. In, on the psychoanalyst couch in the three minutes before they came in or what they were doing the day before, right? And that, to me, that's all history. That's all the past. It's just the immediate past, not some half-remembered version of whatever it is that you think happened with your parents 30 years ago, right? Um, and that's, that's where I think, that's why this is a work of contemporary history, not a work of... It's not a book which compares 2008 to anything very much, right? It's actually a book trying to understand the chains of causation that run forward. The deepest I really go back is to the 1970s, which is where I think, you know, the the world that we think of the present truly originates. It's not after 1945. It's not after World War One. It's really in the period of the 1970s. So we need to go back to the day before yesterday, not to our childhood. We've talked so much about economics and finance. I almost forgot that you're an historian after all. So you were at a panel discussion titled When Global Orders Fail in the Davos World Economic Forum this past January. And you you mentioned that we should sort of take the idea of international order with the, with a pinch of salt, that yeah. it's rather a fragmentary, eclectic exercise uh, with short t time spans. I, I just want to get your quick input on this. You, you also mentioned a lot about history throughout this uh, conversation. What's your angle of looking at global history in modern times, in contemporary times, or throughout? Like, what's the angle that you take 
Um, well, I mean, I, I uh, the person, people I'm most influenced by in thinking about global history are the duo from the Midwest, Michael Geyer and Charles Bright, who wrote a series of incredibly powerful essays on global history from the 1990s onwards. And they posit really that the, we're caught up from the middle of the 19th century onwards in an ever more violent, ever more dynamic, ever more mobile uh, sort of enchainment. They talk about it as the global condition. Um, and no one escapes that. But, you know, if it's true that, you know, the, the water in a river never crosses the same point twice, it's even more true in a stream, you know, something that grows from being a stream to being a roaring river over the course of the period from the early 19th century down to the present. We're on a hockey stick-like development. Economic historians like to talk about this hockey stick. Those who are engaged with issues in global climate change talk about the Anthropocene. That's the kind of image I have of global entanglement, right? So China is growing like countries did in the Industrial Revolution or the 19th century. Yes, but it's 1.4 billion people presided over by a communist party that has its origins in a, co you know, a massive conflagration and civil war that stretched from the 1930s through to 1949. So so, yes, sure, it's like the Industrial Revolution, but not, right? So that is the, that is, I'm much more interested in what, you know, German philosophies of history would have called a universal history. In other words, a history in which everything is connected to everything else, not a history in which, as it were, things are like each other. Uh, but uh, uh, trying to understand those dynamics, uh, those dynamics of interconnection. And I do think that in that kind of vision, therefore, against that kind of massive flux of change and this incredible torrent, and it's directional, it's not backwards and forwards, it's really directional, especially if you think in economic history or in terms of the means of violence, right? it's accumulation um, that goes from famously the slingshot to the atomic bomb. That that in that kind of process, glibly invoking orders, which is why I'm also skeptical about thinking about the liberal order being under threat, is likely to be naive. I understand that people want to talk that way. I can understand the way of, I can understand why you might want to wrap up reality like that, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't kid yourself that that's actually the structure in play. Uh, and when people talk about the post-war order or the liberal order being, you know, in crisis at the current moment, one just simply as a historian tempted to ask, well, when do you think that actually existed? What moment are you talking about? The most convincing answer is something like the mid-1990s. But another way of describing that is simply a unipolar moment of absolute American dominance, where one power was able to dictate terms to everyone else. That's not really an order certainly not, you know, in any really very deep sense, a liberal order. It is one power that happens to be in some sense liberal, dictating terms to everyone else. But we know even at that moment, you know, the politics of America were in fragments. Uh, uh, Mexico was melting down just shortly after NAFTA was passed. Uh, the likes of uh, Larry Summers and Robert Rubin and Tim Geithner spent their entire time in the 90s putting out fires all over Asia. You know, what kind of, a, what kind of an order did it feel like if you were South Korea or Thailand or Russia in the late 1990s? So that doesn't mean there isn't governance going on. That doesn't mean there isn't ordering going on. That doesn't mean that people aren't making attempts to shape this. But the idea it ever really coagulates into anything very structural or ever very given that I think is the that I think is the that I think is the is the naivety uh, which which we should be skeptical and systematically skeptical of. Um, this is probably more of a philosophical than economic question. So aside from all the nuanced operations and mistakes that we sort of made, what do you think is the, the fundamental cause of financial crisis or, or global crisis in general? Is there some sort of 
metaphysical thing that, that you know some people say it's the flaw in humanity or I don't, I don't go to human nature ever ever as a, as a principle you know as a modern historian it's a really bad thing to do uh, but um, but uh, your metaphysical is not the bad word. I mean, there's something rather metaphysical about credit. Credit is. I mean, Joseph Schumpeter is a, is a good economist, and uh, and this idea that he has of a of, of the creation of credit as the driver of change, the enabling of certain groups and actors who are agents of change by means of the creation, really ex nihilo, of purchasing power, and then. Uh, you might almost say a Darwinian struggle to see whose credit actually gets translated into something real. Um, that's a good way of thinking about the fundamental source of instability in the in the financial system. It is credit-fueled creative destruction. Um, so ex nihilo generated dynamism, a key element of which is the competitive destruction of of, uh, of, uh, of weaker members, weaker competitors, the assertion of uh, this control by monopolists, which themselves then become subject to challenge. That I think is as good as any as good as any account of the source of you know financial crisis. It predicts you know the endless repetition of this unless we're willing to really fundamentally gut the capacity of the private credit system to generate this kind of oomph and. That's not that's not a price that the, that anyone's willing to pay, and certainly China has made that a key element, as Japan did, of its extraordinary growth story. Awesome. Crashed. It's a six hundred page book, but is there something that you still think the book didn't get to address? Something you'll probably write another another book about? Oh no, this just scratches the surface of the <laughs> of the drama of, of modern history in our moment, because it really is about the cardiovascular system of the modern economy. And there's everything else to write, but the brain, the eyes, you know, the, 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 the muscular system, trade, data, climate change, globalization understood in those terms. I even have a slightly guilty conscience about the attention that Crash has drawn to the financial crisis, which in some ways is the easiest bit of the globalization problem of the geopolitical and geoeconomic power shift to address because credit is the artifact of law and business practice. It's not like the carbon economy, which we're all literally body and soul in our materiality of everything around us in this studio, stuck with, harnessed to. That's where your materialism comes in. It does indeed, yeah. (laughs) So last question. The, The name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. So I have to ask you at the end of our show, what's the punchline here? Well, for policy on banking crisis, act and act hard. Like as the Americans are showing, as the Chinese have shown, if you see risk, you should move quickly to nip it in the bud. And if the risk then spirals into something more like a general loss of confidence, the contrast between Europe and the United States is incredibly stark in this respect. Um, you act with the maximum mass possible force. You have to regard this not as a problem of order and law, but much more in military terms as an operational problem of how you achieve the effect that you need with whatever means are at your disposal. Um, and this means throwing uh, law and regularity out the window in moments of crisis like this. We, that this is you know, part of my, my anxiety about thinking in terms of order. Um, if you're trying to deal with an inherently disorderly process, there may be moments in which you can tame it by insisting on order, and there may be moments when you simply have to act um, and mobilize whatever resource you can to restore the atmosphere of confidence, the framework of confidence within, without which this system has a tendency to implode.
Thank you so much for those refreshing insights, Professor Tews, not only on financial crisis, but also on global order, history, politics. Thank you so much for joining us today on, on the show. It's been a pleasure, Tiger. Thank you for the conversation. And that concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. We're uh, also available on policypunchline.com. Thank you for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.